Rude Awakenings, Chapter 5, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. After five days of walking in the heat through densely populated northern India, our two pilgrims are approaching Kushinagar, the place of the Buddha's decease and Parinirvana. Nick is struggling. Chapter 5 Looking for Purity Achan Suchito Dazed and in darkness, we came to the town of Kasia. At the time of the Buddha, this was Kusinara. Such a dump then that Venerable Ananda had begged the Buddha not to die in it. But at the end of a long day's walking, dying is of less importance than getting off the numbing road. Here was a good enough place to stop. Getting up again was purely hypothetical. Slumped in a chai shop, my vacant stare rested on the old movie posters that revealed in their tears even older movie posters underneath. The effect was like a collage with supposed present wrapped in and patched up by the supposed past. Events in India are just like that, never completely forgotten, just washed over by the next, never merely of the present either, but moulded by the apparent past which juts through it like resistant bedrock. Kushinagar, a settlement that had sprung up around the excavated ruins of the site of the Buddha's final decease, was a couple of kilometres east along the main trunk road to Gorakhpur. By the clock it was sometime after seven when we hobbled past the welcoming Buddha image at the crossroads, but in the darkness of India time is set free. It can be just like midday, with noisy markets under streamers of lights, and cobblers fixing shoes by paraffin lanterns, or it could be purgatorial night. People live in their own time zone, lying asleep on tables in the midst of revving buses and jangling music, or hammering fine metalwork under flickering neon tubes. At the Burmese Vihara it was night. The metal gates required a little hammering to bring forth some life, which came in the form of a bhikkhu, complete with torch and keys. On seeing a fellow bhikkhu, a mood of homecoming and companionship arose within me. He, however, was an automatic pilot, and briskly conducted us to a narrow courtyard closed around by a single-storey block of rooms. There he opened one of the rooms, and while we were still putting our bags down and easing our blisters out of our sandals, dashed off and returned with the bedding, some mosquito nets and a blanket. The bathing facilities were nearby, a switch in the courtyard connected to a bare light bulb. Could we see the abbot in the morning, perhaps, to pay our respects? OK, OK, no problem. And he was off. I guess he'd had a busy day. 
We'd aimed to arrive at Kushinagar in time for the new moon Upulsa today. Apart from being the days that we use for the all-night meditation sittings, the Upulsa todays are the occasion when bhikkhus meet to refresh and redetermine their training rules. Any misdemeanours are mentioned to another bhikkhu and one reflects on how they occurred and how to prevent them from happening again. All the bhikkhus in the monastery meet, and after they have done this, one of them recites the Patimolka by heart in the Pali language of the scriptures. Recited rapidly by an experienced bhikkhu, this takes 45 minutes or more. The Patimolka is the core of the Vinaya discipline, a sequence of greater and lesser rules setting out the gone-forth principles of harmlessness, celibacy and renunciation as well as procedures for dealing with controversial or uncertain incidents. The word patimoka means a bond, that is, that which connects the fraternity and holds it together. Without the patimoka, the Buddha said, the holy life and the teaching would not last long. He rebukes the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis who shamelessly transgressed the training rules were ferocious and there's even an account of the Buddha refusing to recite the Patimolka because he could sense that one of the assembly was not pure in conduct. A senior disciple eventually took the offender by the arm and threw him out. In monasteries of my tradition, the sense of occasion of the Upposita is heightened by shaving the head on the day before, so that each Upposita today is like a renewal of the going forth. So, after setting down my bag, I went to the bathing area with a fervour for purity. In a kind of courtyard with a large cement-walled tank in the centre, I sloshed cold water over my grimy body, using one of the plastic scoops that sat on the rim of the tank. Soaked up, rubbed, scrubbed, sloshed, until my skin turned from brown to white. Soaked up and sloshed again. While Nick recovered enough to borrow our communal bar of soap, I started on the laundry with a bar of blue soap and a lot of slapping and pounding on the cement floor. We didn't have a change of clothes, so nearly everything had been used and had to be washed in a shift system to allow one to wear something. The skin changing, pounding and slapping became like a purification ritual on arriving at a holy place. At first, our meeting with the Burmese abbot, Nyanisura Mahatera, didn't flow. Our minds were in very different spaces. I realised later that the Vihara was mainly set up as a pilgrim's rest house, a place for coach parties of visitors from Buddhist countries to spend a night, have a look at the ruins, perform a devotional puja, and move on. So people would normally come to see him for a few minutes in their rushed itinerary, to ask about where to go next. Then again, people did not normally arrive on foot with the intention of continuing their pilgrimage in that way. So his most immediate conversation about where to go next was fine if one had a bus and could shoot off to Sanchi or Sankashia for the next day. But when the nearest of those would entail a four days walk, there was not much to the point. It took a while to get across over breakfast in his residence that we were not in a hurry to go anywhere or see anything, that we were interested in what he was doing and how things were working out for him. 
Eventually, the conversation changed when we asked him if he was engaged in any teaching. He became quite animated about the spread of Buddhism in Uttar Pradesh. Apparently, thousands of people were turning up to take the refuges, and he was going to Agra today for a large gathering. Not only were there popular meeting with talks, but people were becoming bhikkhus. He himself had given ordination to many. Things started to link up in my mind. The Indian Buddhist revival. Untouchables. Mass conversions. And Bedkar. The books state that on October 14, 1956, the then abbot of the Burmese Vihara and senior most bhikkhu in India, Uchandramani Mahatera, gave the five precepts to Dr. Bimrao Ambedkar at Nagpur in Maharashtra state, thereby acknowledging his conversion to Buddhism. Even the books can't say how many of Ambedkar's followers converted with him, somewhere between 200,000 and half a million. Statistics are wonderfully pliable, and who counts untouchables? There may have been about 60 million of them at the turn of the century, people who were neither completely in nor entirely out of the system of four varna, called castes, but maybe more like classes. These varna have acted as the social and ethical base of the culture since the Aryans invaded over 3,000 years ago. These untouchables were not included in the Varna, but were bound to its structure by the duty of performing menial tasks, such as handling corpses and excrement, on behalf of the others who held them in contempt and treated them as the lowest of the low. Physical contact with them, eating with them, or drinking from the same well, was held to defile a high-caste Hindu. Gandhi renamed the untouchables Harijan, children of God, in an attempt to raise their dignity while preserving the structure of the Varna and their position within it. However, the untouchables regard this title as the hypocrisy of a system trying to whitewash itself and nowadays refer to themselves as Dalit, the broken, the scattered. Some say now that these Dalits had been the pre-Aryan inhabitants of India, but the mainstream of the culture and its interpretations has held to the social structure and ethos of the Aryans as expressed in the Vedas. The religious expressions and the forms of the divine have changed, but the Dharma persists. And in Vedic thought, the Dharma is the duty of one's class. It is better to do one's own duty badly than another's well, states the laws of Manu, 2nd to 3rd century CE, a sentiment given religious sanctity by the Bhagavad Gita, the cornerstone of Hinduism. So, for the untouchables at the time of Ambedkar and Gandhi, liberation from the Hindus was at least as important as liberation from the British. Towards that goal, Ambedkar directed most of his adult life, 
Although born and untouchable, he had through force of character and intelligence acquired degrees in economics, philosophy and politics in London and New York, and was subsequently called to the bar. Despite his clashes with Gandhi over the caste system, his intellectual brilliance and political skills caused him to be appointed to chair the drafting committee for the constitution of the newly created Indian Republic. It was due to him that this constitution abolished untouchability and declared, The state shall not discriminate against any citizen on grounds only of religion, race, caste, sex, place of birth, or any of them. Thus speaks the law. But with the poor, illiterate and dominated 35% of the population still forming what are now called scheduled castes, as against an upper echelon of 5%, these high-minded statements and even legislation have not brought about equality, far less fraternity. Dr. Ambedkar himself must have realised that political power is fragile and finally ineffectual, so he also sought religious authority. His own personal convictions and the need to provide his people with a religion and culture that supported them brought about his conversion to the way of the Buddha, whom Nehru himself had called India's greatest son, and a multitude joined and continued to join him. The conversion lifted the Dalits out of the context of Hindu culture, gave them a new identity and blessed them with dignity. The Buddhist population of India therefore grew from 50,000 at the turn of the century to a present total of 6 million, say 8 million if you like. It depends on who's counting. A few days previous we had witnessed, in fact participated in, a minor incident in the struggle. On the road just before Siswal Bazaar, we had encountered a very dark-skinned bhikkhu wearing a yellow robe. He was walking on the road towards us, and Nick and I greeted him with some enthusiasm, but no success as far as verbal communication. He had no English and no Hindi. The natural solution was tea in the chai shop on the other side of the road. We were settled into a corner and ordered three teas, two without milk for us. Then a well-dressed man parked his bike outside and stooped to enter the gloomy shack. Pale-skinned, of upright bearing, someone of unquestionable and unforced confidence, obviously a Brahmin. His English, as he courteously addressed us, was rich and flowing, if a little out of date and over-meticulous in its consonants. He didn't sit down, Standing seemed to suit his slightly theatrical delivery, but rounded on us, bright eyes underneath raised eyebrows to introduce us to Buddhism, which he understood completely, as well as the Vedas, the Gita and Christianity. I am a disciple of the Lord Buddha. I worship the Lord Buddha every day. And it is scoundrels like this, stabbing a magisterial finger at the Indian bhikkhu, who are corrupting the Lord Buddha's teaching. They are just troublemakers. And so on. Nick waggled his hand and started interjecting a few phrases about caste and Buddhism. And he's a Buddhist monk. 
That means he's practising a religion. He's not stirring up trouble. Nick's dismissive laugh momentarily checked the flow while the Brahmin recoiled and stiffened. I said something quietly about form and essence. It was much too prosaic. Nick and the Brahmin joined in a rhetorical tussle. The scheduled bhikkhu cringed in the corner and I decided to drink my tea. At least Nick and I got something to drink. The chai waller wasn't going to serve an untouchable tea in his shop, not with the Brahmin present. You don't turn 3,000 years of assumptions and positions around over the table in a chai shop. So he moved on. The Indian bhikkhu, embarrassed but relieved to get out of the shop, waggled his head and walked off in his direction with stooped shoulders. For another 3,000 years, probably. We hadn't gone far when the Brahmin came by on his bike, dismounted, chatted politely to us, and invited us to come and stay at his house. But it felt easier to keep moving along on our own road. Somewhere in that direction was the Buddha and some clear reflection. He who shows no anger towards those who are angry, peaceful towards those who are violent, not grasping among those who are bent on grasping, is one I call a Brahmin, a clear, calm, stainless, moonlight quality where the shackles of constant becomings are cut and thrown away. This is what Brahmin means. No one is born a Brahmin. No one is born a non-Brahmin. A Brahmin is a Brahmin because of what he does. After breakfast with the abbot, Nick and I sought out the shrine commemorating the Buddha's Parinivana. It was in the park immediately adjacent to the Vihara. I didn't expect to see neat green parks in India, so the gardens that the shrine presided over were a pleasant surprise. It was still early morning, and there were not many people around. Birds were decorating the silence with trills and calls. Broad-leaved creepers gracefully adorned the trees. The vegetation was soft and yielding to the eye. The sensory world for once was on its best behaviour gracing the simple shrine where millennia ago the Buddha took leave of it. With the hardships of the way sloughed off, a tingling eagerness carried us up some steps and into the simple tomb-shaped building that served as the temple of the shrine. Reclining along the length of the interior so that there was a passage of about two metres around it was an image of the Buddha in the last moments of his life. The statue was about three times life-size. His head was pointing to the north, and he lay on his right side, with his gently smiling face supported by his right hand. His left arm lay along his left thigh, with the fingers of the hand resting against the side of his knee. The feet were placed one exactly on top of the other. 
A yellow robe was draped over his body, and the light from the huge windows that filled the north and south ends of the hall flowed over him. Images of attendant disciples, one weeping, one more composed, form part of the sculpture setting. We knelt and joined them, paying our respects to the enlightened one. It is recorded that even at this last moment of his life, the Buddha was solicitors of his disciples' welfare, asking them several times whether they had any queries about the teachings that he had given, or if they were too bashful to ask one of their fellows to inquire on their behalf. All were silent. Then I tell you, bhikkhus, all conditioned processes are transient. Practice with diligence. Closing his eyes to focus completely on his ebbing life force, the Buddha carefully guided his consciousness to final nirvana. We paid our respects. I offered some incense and chanted some verses. The polished stone floor was cool. It was a still and peaceful place to sit for a while and listen to the silence. Standing immediately behind the temple, like an attendant bhikkhu watching over its reclining form, was the Nirvana stupa, a simple dome taller than it was round with a stubby square turret on top. A stupa's great dome echoes the totality and all-embracing nature of the awakened mind. Its elevation toward the sky moves the mind upward to the vast and eternal. It is the eternal still point around which the world of events turns. Contemplating such themes, the pilgrim circumambulates the stupa in a clockwise direction so that the fortunate right side is kept towards the stupa. Stupas are a devotional expression that predates the urge to represent the Buddha in terms of a human image. This stupa also acted as a commentary on Buddhist activity in India, having accumulated and then lost forms as devotions waxed and waned. The invisible core of the stupa was a shokan, dating back to some 200 years after the final decease. Then, Buddhism was widespread, popular, and supported by the emperor. Stupa worship emerged as its primary devotional expression. This mood continued through the classic age of the Gupta emperors, and in the middle of the 5th century CE, the monk Haribala, under whose directions the image of the reclining Buddha had been made, arranged for the construction of a new stupa to encase the old one. That was high tide. Then the tide turned Hindu and Muslim, and Buddhism petered out. It was the British, with a sense of history, who bore down through the earth to reveal the remnants that the flood of devotion had left. The cluster of long deserted monasteries was exhumed and fingered by archaeologists, and then by pilgrims. Courtesy of Burmese devotees, the ruined stupa got reborn in 1927 
and then came people more idly curious to add their touches. A few names were carved haphazardly in the stone. The stupor continued to reflect human impulses without comment. It evoked and received our homage. Over the past few days' walk, I had been setting my mind to a mantra that fitted to my footsteps. Namo Bodhaya, Namo Dhammaya, Namo Sangaya. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dhamma, homage to the Sangha. Reciting this, we slowly circumambulated the stupa, following the dome's towering curvature. Then, on the second circumambulation, a very dark-skinned bhikkhu, wearing a bright yellow robe, strolled into view, brandishing an arms bowl. He'd cut across my path with a broad grin. Paisa! Paisa! It wasn't food, but money he was after. I waved him off with some irritation, but he was there as persistent as before on the third circuit, and I stopped to say, No money! Bhikkhus don't use money! quoting one of the rules in the Patimokha that prohibits a bhikkhu from accepting or using money. His response had a zen-like edge to it. He pulled out a coin from his pocket, held it above the bowl with a grin, and let it drop in. Then he rattled it around. And wearing the Buddha's robe, the mantra's stillness collapsed under a wave of anger. It was even more upsetting to notice how my mind was echoing the Brahminical sentiments that I had found so distasteful outside Siswal. We moved past him dismissively, descended the temple steps, which were flanked with signs prohibiting and warning about beggars, and drifted back past the ruins of Buddhism to the Vihara. Back at the Vihara, my impressions continued to flounder. The mealtime with the Indian bhikkhus, the Burmese at somewhere else, was like a works canteen, devoid of the contemplative silence and composure that is the acknowledged standard. There were only a few bhikkhus hanging round the shady dining room, and they were not bothered about refinement. The lodgings bhikkhus skidded in late and slid behind the table, wolfing down food and coming out with high-speed incomprehensible sentences through mouthfuls of rice and dal. When he finished eating, I asked him about the Patimoka recitation. He'd never even heard of it. There was an old Indian bhikkhu there too, sour-faced and monosyllabic, who had spent most of the day sitting in a chair. The holy life didn't seem to be bringing him much joy. One ray of light was the Nepalese nun, small and slight with large spectacles propped on her tiny nose and long ears swathed in the pink robe of a ten-precept Burmese nun, she knocked on our door late in that first afternoon while we lay down still recuperating from the walking. She bore a large thermos of tea. The next morning she was at the door again, tea and biscuits this time, and in the afternoon was Nick was away rambling round the sights. There she was at the end of my walking meditation path, with her giant flask, her quietness, her matter-of-fact adoption of the pair of us. In other respects, my Sangha refuge was going to have to be an internal affair. 
Nick Scott. When we first arrived, I just sat in our room and relished the feeling of not having to go anywhere. The morning after, I managed to move into the gardens of the main temple, just next door. I spent the rest of that day sitting under the first tree I came to. Not to have to walk during the heat of the day. Not to have to talk to all those people. Just to be able to sit alone amidst nature. The gardens were a little green and leafy oasis. And I spent most of my time there. The gardens were laid out amidst the ruins exposed by the archaeologists. Walkways that followed the foundations of old temples or monasteries and beside the bases of small stupas also passed under and through flowering trees and shrubs. Ground that had not been lowered to expose gupta-aged brickwork was laid out as lawns, their green complementing the orange-red of the bricks. It was all well kept and a delight to stroll through in the evening or morning when the visitors weren't there. Then it would be full of bird life, and I would sit under a tree with my binoculars trying to catch the smaller and more elusive species flitting about the shrubs, to be suddenly surprised by a large flock of parakeets that would fly in from the fields chattering loudly and pile into one of the trees. During the day the grounds would be full of people, not just the foreign pilgrims and tourists, but also lots of middle-class Indians. India doesn't have much in the way of public space or parks, so the gardens have become somewhere to go for a day out. At the weekend there were office workers and their women folk in their best saris, strolling about or eating picnics on the lawns. On weekdays the office workers were replaced by parties of schoolchildren from the better schools, with uniforms resembling those of English public schools. The bird life withdrew then, but not the Hanuman monkeys. They were an integral part of the park, living, sleeping and playing there, and only occasionally making forages into the surrounding fields. They would sit, the troop of them spread through several of the small trees, oblivious of the visitors, with their long tails hanging down from the branches, curled slightly at the end. They also came across the walls and roofs of the Vihara, grey and long-limbed, with their tails now held high, their black faces on the lookout for bits of food to make off with. I imagine the gardens at Kushinagar must have been laid out by the British. The trees looked about the right age, and I knew they'd done most of the excavating. When the British first came to India, there were accounts of the great Buddhist shrines, but no knowledge of where they were. Among these new rulers were people fascinated with all the physical remains of India's past. Unlike the Indians, the Victorian British were a people interested in material history. The British Museum is crowded today with the physical relics of other cultures. The start of archaeology in India was led by one man, Sir Alexander Cunningham. He'd come to India as a second lieutenant in 1833 at the age of 21 and went on to become an administrator, a surveyor, and an engineer, he distinguished himself at all of these occupations. But what is known for today is the uncovering of India's past. As he travelled about northern India on his work, he'd visit the thousands of forts, temples, and other ancient remains that dotted the landscape. 
he surveyed many of them, learned to decipher the ancient scripts, and built up a knowledge of the architecture of the different ages of India. When he retired from the army in 1861, he was made the first director general of the Indian Archaeological Survey. Despite being a very committed Christian, with a poor opinion of Hinduism and Islam, he developed a respect for the Buddhist teachings and their contribution to India's history. When he took charge of the archaeological survey, he set about looking for the ancient Buddhist sites and was personally responsible for finding many of them. It was someone else who first suggested that the name of the town of Cassia might be derived from Kusinara, but it was Cunningham who came here in his first year as Director General to inspect the sites, and it was his assistant, ACL Carlyle, who carried out the first excavations in 1876. This exposed the main stupa and uncovered the giant reclining Nirvana statue of the Buddha buried in the debris of an oblong shrine. There have been many excavations of the site since, and they have uncovered layers of devotional buildings around the main stupa. Now the pilgrims have returned, coming from countries still Buddhist, and they have begun building anew. The first were the Burmese. The Bhikkhu Chandramani made Kushinagar his home in 1903. He managed to get possession of the old temple ruins and made it a living shrine. Later he constructed the Pilgrim's Vihara, where we were now staying, as well as a school for local children and a college. This was all supported by the waves of pilgrims from Burma, who could travel here easily during the time of the British, as Burma was then part of British rule. The Burmese had been followed by the Sri Lankans, the Chinese, the Vietnamese and the Japanese, who have all built temples or rest houses in the vicinity of the shrine. It was the Indian government, though, that rebuilt the temple to house the giant reclining Buddha as part of the Jayanti celebration of two and a half thousand years since the Buddha's death. That was in 1956, so perhaps it was then that the gardens were laid out, and not during the British rule. We entered the temple before it closed for the night at the beginning of another all-night sitting, on the new moon. Once again I started the vigil full of determination, sitting under one of the trees looking up at the dark bulk of the stupa with the stars beyond it, then doing walking meditation when drowsiness began to set in. It must have been around seven when we started, and it was ten when I decided to sit for a while on one of the stone benches just for a little rest. No harm in it. I wouldn't fall asleep as the stone was so hard and cold. I came to after midnight, stiff and cold, sprawled sideways on the bench, just in time to take Ajahn Suchito a midnight drink of tea, which I'd got earlier from a tea stall in the thermos left by the Nepalese nun. After that I continued once more, regularly walking round the stupa, trying to keep awake and then finishing with Ajahn Suchito, but with that familiar feeling of having failed again. Ajahn Suchito That night there was no moon at all. 
We began the meditation vigil at the Parinivana stupa some time after sunset, when everything was quiet. The stars lit up the stupa. Its hard surface was like all the ideas we have about transcending existence. We lit incense, chanted, and sat together for a while. The fatigue from the walk unrolled heavy waves of lethargy. Before midnight, my mind was shutting down in dullness, and I alternated walking with sitting meditation to stay awake. It was a long night and chilly. Nick produced the welcome flask of hot tea at twelve. The tea and the gratitude felt good. Later, walking dully around the towering shrine in the thin starlight, scraps of Rilke's poem about the Buddha flickered in the blankness. Illuminated in your infinite peace, a billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. By 3.30 I couldn't even pronounce transcending existence. We climbed awkwardly over the railings to get back into the Vihara. I felt grateful for the flowers, though, giving their sweetness to the night when no one was around to appreciate them. Something very pure in that. With the more mellow frame of mind that a vigil leaves one in, I could appreciate the Vihara for what it was. It was much easier to meditate there than on the road. There were pictorial signs posted up reminding people to be quiet, particularly in the Vihara's main shrine room. And the place was quiet, with long covered walkways around the courtyard, which were excellent for walking meditation. I spent most of the next two days either in the courtyard or up on a flat roof. Up there, it was completely deserted except for an occasional Hanuman monkey. The washing could dry in the sun, or I meditated in the shade of a small shrine. Everywhere one was reminded of the devotion that supported the place. Engraved marble plaques set in the wall informed the reader that so-and-so of Rangoon, with a dozen other names, had donated this block, or that an association in Mandalay had sponsored the toilets. Each smooth-faced Buddha image bore a little sign at its base to point out that someone from Burma, Thailand or Malaysia had offered this to the temple in memory of a dear relative. The blades of the fan that rotated overhead were inscribed in red or blue with names in Burmese scripts. Wave after wave of pilgrim had deposited their aspiration here. On that was based the richness of privacy and silence. Accordingly, the Vihara was set up to accommodate parties of lay pilgrims. It was the original Buddhist pilgrim's rest house. Nowadays in Kukshinagar, it had been joined by many other viharas and superseded in terms of size and elegance by lodges that were not viharas at all. Although the abbot was away or busy most of the time during our stay, we did get a chance to talk to his brother, also a bhikkhu, who added some details of the situation. Apparently, there was very little training for the new bhikkhus. The Burmese were busy with other duties and it was difficult to get people to stay anyway. Many left and went their own way soon after ordination and wouldn't commit themselves to training, 
They made their living begging from Buddhist pilgrims. He didn't look pleased. Then again he had his own sadness. Having protested against and been forced to flee from the military regime in Burma, he couldn't go back. India had accepted him. Like us, the difficulty lay in accepting it in return. Nick Scott The day after the all-night sitting, I visited some of the modern shrines. I went alone as Asun Suchito wasn't interested in looking around. He wanted to meditate. His seal for the practice can be really inspiring. But I was now realising that it could also be intimidating when you were with him all the time. As I set off, I consoled my growing sense of inadequacy with the thought that most other bhikkhus I'd travelled with would have wanted to join me. Ajahn Suchita was pretty unique. At least at the holy sites I could give myself a day off like this. On the road, I was shackled to his ardent application. Next door to the Burmese Vihara was a Chinese temple, all bright colours and oriental dragons with a big golden Buddha, a musty inside from lack of use. A notice informed me that the temple was now the responsibility of a Vietnamese monk. Although it looked little visited and in need of some new paint, the grounds were well tended. The flowering shrubs had been recently watered and the gravel paths raked. I left a donation in the collection box, a small attempt to make up for all the Chinese and Vietnamese Buddhists who could no longer come on pilgrimage. Opposite the gardens was a modern Indian government tourist lodge, an oblong block of concrete painted pink with verandas and rows of big windows. This was where the Thai pilgrims were staying. They came from a culture that had outgrown the basic provision of the Burmese Vihara and expected ensuite bathrooms and air conditioning. In the Burmese Vihara, the income they used to bring was missed. There had been excitement about a Thai party coming that caused us to be moved into poorer accommodation. But when they arrived, they decided to stay in the tourist lodge instead. Further down the road, there was a collection of slightly ramshackle buildings, which turned out to be a temple supervised by an elderly Indian bhikkhu, who insisted on showing me around his dusty archaeological collection, while also telling me his life history. He was a nice old chap, with impeccable Indian English, that gave away his Brahmin birth and I left a small donation to his fund to build a proper museum. Next to this, in complete contrast to the disorder I'd just left, was a beautiful Japanese temple, built using local bricks to resemble from the outside a big stupa. It was set about with manicured lawns and recent tree plantings, and was enclosed in a wall to keep the chaos out. Notices inside in several languages telling visitors how to behave were hardly necessary. The effect of the breathtakingly beautiful temple quietened even the most boisterous family. The large hall under the stupa dome had been left mostly empty with the appreciation of space that the Japanese are so good at. Across the polished marble floor was a shrine with an enormous elegant gold Buddha. 
and around the circular wall were Japanese brushwork depictions of Buddhist arahants on tall wall hangings. The concave ceiling reflected the slightest sound, like a big cave, creating a well of silence that the echoing sounds disappeared into. I stood for a long time, appreciating the emptiness, beauty and silence. When I left, I put a donation in their collection box too, not because they needed it, but just out of appreciation. Then I returned to the Vihara to find my companion doing walking meditation, pacing up and down the cloister next to our room. He did agree to join me for a trip the next day to visit the cremation stupa, but only when I pointed out that this was a valid pilgrimage site. Next day on the way to the cremation stupa, we stopped at the well from which Ananda fetched water for the Buddha's last drink. This had been fenced off and planted about with a few trees and shrubs and was overseen by an Indian chokidor, or caretaker. When we entered, the chokidor produced some flowers, picked from the shrubs, for us to lay before the small shrine. He hovered behind us as we paid our respects and when we'd finished, he asked for money. The flowers weren't his and he was already paid to look after them, so I declined. The cremation stupa was large, a small hill of old eroded red bricks with none of the original ornamentation left, surrounded by flat rice paddies. We lit incense, did some chanting, bowed and then started to circumambulate. We went round three times and on our third circuit a tourist bus pulled up on the road, disgorged a party of Southeast Asian people led by a Mahayana Buddhist nun with shaven head, a long grey robe and a dark brown cloak over it clasped to her shoulder, she made her flock, dressed in western clothes, look very ordinary. She led them to the stupa, where they performed an elaborate puja with a lot of chanting of high-pitched voices and big bundles of smoking incense. We stood quietly behind them, until she noticed us in Suchito, and had him join her at the front. I stayed at the rear, moving off to take some photographs, it made a great scene. After the puja was finished, we were asked in halting English where we were from and about our pilgrimage. They were from Malaysia, all of them Malaysian Chinese, I suspected, and were very taken with our intention to walk round the holy sites. The nun was particularly enthusiastic and tried to give Ajahn Suchito some money. He explained that he didn't use it, which resulted in her being even more impressed and once she'd worked out that I could receive the money, she had her disciples shower me with Indian banknotes. Then they had to leave. They were on a tight schedule, taking two weeks to do what it would take us most of six months. As they drove off, we turned to walk back to the Burmese Vihara. I was still clutching the banknotes, and I could not help but reflect on the effect of money. It was so hard to use it skillfully, it was such sticky stuff. The generosity of unskillful pilgrims resulted in monks begging and chokidars trying to sell flowers they didn't own. Although the Burmese Vihara was set up as a service for pilgrims, it now seemed to seek out the wealthy ones. On the other hand, there was such joy to be had from giving money and the blessing that it could bring. I resolved to give all our new banknotes to the Chinese temple.
they needed it more than we did and they weren't hassling for it. On the last morning, I tried walking for arms with my bowl in the village. To my surprise at first, there was no devotional or hospitable response from the local Indian population. I didn't even receive a stare. Here, bhikkhus were part of the scene. They were either well endowed with cameras and money and arrived in deluxe coaches at the head of a pilgrim entourage, or they were the caretakers of the temples, or they were the beggars who patrolled the sacred ruins or sat patiently with little cloths sprinkled with coins in front of them. No cause for devotion, faith or generosity to arise in that. A quixotic gallantry stirred me. For me to be here as a pilgrim in the middle country meant to serve it by living as the Buddha told us. Maybe that would cause faith and wise reflections to arise. But really, there was no point in having expectations. My dharma was to live as a bhikkhu. Whether anyone responded to that was their business. November 20th. It was time to leave Kushinagar. We took leave at Unyanisara and paid our last respects at Nirvana Temple in the morning. We left in the middle of the afternoon after the midday heat had abated a little. Nick planned a nearby destination for us for that day, Fazilnagar, 18 kilometres due east. There, according to Bunty, was a stupa and the site where the Buddha ate his last meal, the fatal dish that set off the violent colic and dysentery that brought his life to an end. The straight and obvious route was along the main road that connects Lucknow and Gorakhpur with a new bridge over the Gandak River. On the other side of the river, the road would lead south to Patna and thence connect to Calcutta or the industrial towns of southern Bihar. A high road at the time of the Buddha, it was now a trunk road, hard going for wayfarers like us. On the road to Tutibari, trucks had passed us quite frequently, but here, the traffic was continuous in both directions. The heavy lorries and buses thundering in both lanes competed over the central two metres of the road, which was the strip that had unbroken tarmac on it. A walker had to stay engaged with the flow to negotiate his own passage in the pitted margins and ditches on the fringe of the pavement. The zone shared with teetering bullock carts, bicycles and motor scooters. Apart from the effect of the physical weaving and bobbing and the stench of dust-laden diesel fumes, the nerve endings were further seared by the continual welter of harsh sound. A truck or bus driver in India drives with one thumb almost constantly rammed on the horn, and the small fry mimic the leviathans. In India not many bikes had lights, but they all had bells. Ox carts had the whoops and calls of the drivers, Scooters had hooters, lorries had klaxons. They were like the four castes. Nick and I, inaudible, marginalised and shoved to the worst part of the track, walked hunched and harry in the way of the untouchables. 
I feel as if I had been liberated from hell, said Ambedkar immediately after his conversion. By the time we arrived at the outskirts of Fazilnagar, I had an inkling of what he meant. Nick had some vague indications of a Jain Dharamasala, a pilgrim's rest house, in Fazilnagar, where we could stop for the night. The idea of a Jain rest house was intriguing. The things I heard about Jain renunciation made us bhikkhus look soft. Apparently they didn't shave their heads. The monks, nuns too, had every hair on their bodies pulled out. They didn't have arms bowls. Instead they had to collect food in their hands and were only allowed to go to a limited number of houses to glean arms. Of the two Jain sects, one wore white robes, the other, sky-clad, wore nothing. Jainism had formed at the same time as Buddhism. Unlike the Buddha, Mahavira, its nominal founder, claimed to have had many enlightened predecessors. For both these teachers, their predecessors and their disciples were summoners, people who had abandoned caste and avowed no allegiance to gods. In the summoner's tradition, the realization of truth came through direct gnosis in a life styled on purification through austerity rather than right. Probably predating the Aryan conquest, the tradition was incompatible with the Vedic system. It must have been sustained by recluses in forests and caves over the centuries, but it gained a broad focus through the popularity of the Buddha and Mahavira. The two masters apparently did not meet, and their teachings are actually quite different. Mahavira, like the Buddha, rejected animal sacrifice and all destruction of life, but, unlike the Buddha, made even unintentional killing a hindrance to liberation. Harmlessness was taken to the point where one couldn't scratch oneself because of the violence one would commit to one's own flesh. The underlying rationale behind all this asceticism was to avoid being involved with any unwholesome action, however minute. Root vegetables were forbidden, for example, lest the earth or creatures living therein be disturbed by the cultivator in providing food for the monks. At least that's what I'd heard. People will do some extreme things for the sake of purity. A chai stall, the only sane place in India received us in the dusk. Inquiries took us a little way back from the rain road to a large and imposing set of metal doors with silence and darkness behind them. They seemed to be locked. We took it in terms tugging and pushing on the doors or rattling them with some hesitation. What if they were up to some esoteric mortifications beyond in the gloom? Less than ebullient after the events of the day, we wandered up and down a little. Was this the right place? The man who had pointed it out to us came by, surprised to see us still out in the dark street. After affirming to us that this was the Dharamsala, he walked up to the doors and effortlessly pushed open a smaller door within the left-hand door. A little embarrassed, we stepped through into darkness. <laughs> 